A dragon's scales are largely, though not entirely, impervious to flame. They protect the more vulnerable flesh and musculature beneath. As a dragon ages, its scales thicken and grow harder, affording even more protection, even as its flames burn hotter and fiercer. Where the flames of a hatchling can set straw afire, the flames of Balerion and Vagar, in the fullness of their power, could and did melt steel and stone. When two dragons meet in mortal combat, therefore, they will oft employ weapons other than their flame, claws black as iron, long as swords, and sharp as razors, jaws so powerful they can crunch through even a knight's steel plate, tails like whips whose lashing blows have been known to smash wagons to splinters, break the spine of heavy destriers, and send men flying fifty feet in the air. The knight is the standard, dominant, martial figure of Westeros and has been for eons now. This quote shows us that the warrior class is completely outclassed by dragons who, minus the occasional lucky shot from a scorpion or the like, have no threats to fear except from each other. None of this is an exaggeration as far as we can tell either. We saw Drogon break the back of a wild horse and he's a young dragon. A bigger dragon could probably do that to an elephant or a mammoth. Maybe even if it had a giant on its back. With something so powerful, so unrelentingly dominant under your control, the last thing you'd want to do is lose it, we'd think. But we've seen countless examples of people squandering power, even power they fought hard to acquire, both real-world and fictional. Though for most Targaryens, power is something they're born with. Access to dragons is an inherent birthright, or at least it was. But the Targaryens, in this era, seem to have forgotten that lesson. The brief portion of history that we'll cover today, perhaps more than any other save the doom itself, is where they lost that long-held advantage. Hello, and welcome to the fifth installment of Radio Westeros plus History of Westeros, covering the Dance of the Dragons. We've prefaced each episode in this series so far with several real-world historical parallels and one famous literary parallel. Though it would be fun and consistent to keep that going, this time we've eschewed Earthbound comparisons. Let's explain why. What are things you've heard equated with dragons? Bombers? Tanks? Nuclear weapons? Notice how none of that really fits in a medieval-ish setting? And that's the heart of the matter here. This episode features the deaths of many dragons, and there is no real-world equivalent to that. Nothing we could think of, anyway. It gets at what makes dragons unique to the setting, and why they're so overwhelming. At least, why they can be. A lot still comes down to the rider, and we've seen, shall we say, questionable strategies used. The rider's also the weak link. Without one, a dragon is simply something to avoid. That said, we'll be saying goodbye to several dragon riders today as well, for a variety of reasons, from assassination to regular old murder to just death in battle. There's quite a sampling in this phase of the war. And now, before we continue, let's start, as always, by giving thanks to our patrons. Visit patreon.com slash radiowesteros and patreon.com slash historyofwesteros to find out how you can support our work, too. Thanks to the History of Westeros First Sword, Lady H, and Dragonlord Eric the Evening Shade, Lord of the Groves and Defender of Stigai, Rider of Ixodes, Scapularis, the Bloodthirsty, a dragon with purple scales and wings, with a red underside, black horns, and green eyes. Radio Westeros Flaming Lightbringer patron TJ Harrington, Dragonsteel patron Peter, 
And pale as milk glass patrons Alex, Daniel, Chris B, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, John Wergarian, and M.T. Walls, first of his name. As well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Dying of the Dragons. To go forward, let's go back and recall this quote. To characterize the dark, turbulent, bloody doings of this period as a dance strikes us as grotesquely inappropriate. No doubt the phrase originated with some singer. The dying of the dragons would be altogether more fitting but tradition, time, and Grand Maester Munkin have burned the more poetic usage into the pages of history. So we must dance along with the rest. We're not bound by any of that. We can call this episode Part 5, The Dying of the Dragons, all we want. The storming of the Dragon Pit saw the deaths of Morgul, Shrikos, Taraxes, Dreamfire, and Cyrax. Prior to that, we saw the deaths of Stormcloud, Maelis, Vermax, and Arax. That's nine, which is quite a lot. But Caraxes, Vermithor, Silverwing, Seasmoke, Sheepstealer, Vagar, not to mention Tassarian, Moondancer, the Wounded Sunfire, all still among the living at this point, meaning that overwhelmingly the most dangerous and largest dragons remained on the board. By the end of this episode, though, that will no longer be true. Last episode, we focused on the theme of things falling apart, and this is, for House Targaryen, the consequence of that collapse, one they'd never recover from, the loss of that which made them truly special, dragons. For the realm, it might be a good thing in the long term, but the dying of the dragons did massive and tragic collateral damage at the time. We'll feature three events, each of which sees the death of one or more dragons, each of which is a return to a crucial location, each of which is a final showdown between some of the biggest players and the biggest dragons. And that's just the literal dragons. Quite a few of the metaphorical dragons, the Targaryens themselves, have died already as well. Rhaenys, Lucerys, Jaceres, Joffrey, Jaehaerys, Maelor, Helena, and more will die this episode with or without their dragons. Notably, as it is with the biggest dragons, the highest ranking Targaryens were still in the fight as well. It's almost like there was nothing left to do but let the biggest fight the biggest. Maybe they should have just started that way. It would have saved an awful lot of lives and homes and such. But that's the thing with this war. Neither side thought much about those they were ruling over before or during it. These Targaryens, Hightowers, Valarians, and the rest saw the realm as their privilege, not their duty. Had they done otherwise, they might have found an advantage. The realm was starved for someone to actually care about something other than the Blacks versus the Greens. Much later, the boy king Aegon III will ascend the throne after the war. Though not exactly an upbeat boy or man, King Aegon's first act upon coming of age was to declare... 
full bellies and dancing bears will be my policy. It was as if he couldn't wait to correct this long overdue oversight. But before those days of peace, his elders, the dragon lords, were locked in a fight to the death at all costs, even if that cost was everything. Not unlike two dragons locked in a death spiral high above in the air, if they just let go, they'll both live to fly another day. If they don't, they'll both die. And in more than one case, the metaphor plays out quite literally. Winning was more important than living to enjoy it. Better to die than see the other side win could have been the motto of either blacks or greens. Still, there were heroes and brave deeds, some few with honor, and those who did their best to make all this a little less terrible. And it wasn't all dragons and Targaryens. There's no shortage of characters who made things interesting. And there's a few mysteries besides. Let's not forget the mysteries. Return to Harrenhal. Rhaenyra had proved the truth of the saying, fear cuts deeper than swords. Physically unharmed, except saved by the throne itself, she was deeply wounded emotionally given so much loss. From that stemmed unrelenting paranoia, and that was perhaps the biggest factor in her downfall. Agreeing to arrest Adam and Nettles was arguably the worst mistake she made, the most singly responsible for her loss of the throne so soon after she had gained it. It had cost her the sea snake and his men and ships. If she had retained his counsel and support, she may not have had to flee the city at all. Amazingly for her, as we'll see, Adam Valarian not only stayed loyal, but put great effort into encouraging others to do so, too. But Prince Damon didn't take it quite so well. Damon and Nettles at Maidenpool Last we heard of Damon and Nettles, they were in Maidenpool, where they had been sent to protect the city and castle there, and to seek out Aemond and Vagar, who were ravaging the area around the Trident. But as we know, in the aftermath of the betrayal of Hugh and Ulf, Rhaenyra had listened to her counselors, who urged her to take action against the other seeds, Adam Valerian and Nettles. Accordingly, Lord Mouton had received a secret message from Rhaenyra, ordering the immediate execution of the girl Nettles. And as we said in our last episode, with that message, the seeds had now been sown for further tragedy. At Maidenpool, Damon kept Nettles close by his side. Lord Mouton's maester, Maester Norrin, reported that the pair took all their meals together and slept in adjoining rooms. He further added that Damon, quote, doted upon the brown girl as a man might dote upon his daughter. And that he taught her courtly manners and how to dress and wash and generally behave, and that he gave her gifts, including an ivory-handled hairbrush, a silvered looking glass, a cloak of rich brown velvet bordered in satin, and a pair of riding boots of leather soft as butter. We said in earlier episodes, a number of indications point to Nettles possibly being Prince Damon's natural daughter. Maester Gildane himself notes Damon's long history of consorting with sex workers, and since Nettles is recognized by both Mushroom and Gildane as the daughter of a, quote, dockside whore, what better explanation do we have for her affinity with dragons than that she possessed the blood of the dragon herself? But rather than acknowledge this possibility, even after relating the statement from Maester Norn about Damon doting on Nettie as a man might dote upon his daughter, Gildane chooses to go with the more salacious possibility suggested by Mushroom that, no matter how unlikely it seemed, Nettles was Prince Damon's paramour. 
In support of his conclusion, Gildane offers a foul collection of classist and sexist assumptions, primarily that because she had grown up on the streets of Spicetown and as the child of a sex worker, Nettles must have surrendered her maidenhead at an early age in exchange for food or money. He also goes on to declare that she could never have come up with the sheep she used to tame sheep stealer on Dragonstone in any way other than, quote, lifting her skirts for some shepherd. Gildane is often on the wrong side of things, but this time he seems to really let his natural prejudices about women and bastards and non-noble humans in general shine through in coming to a truly despicable conclusion about Nettles based on nothing more than circumstance and salacious gossip. We saw similar bias against Sarah Snow, Craig and Stark's sister, whom Gildane calls a, quote, half-wild, unwashed northern bastard. There's no evidence given of either her wildness or her lack of bathing, so it appears to be simple prejudice against northerners, bastards, and or women. It seems there's a pattern here. And this matters because it speaks to how everyone else in the ruling class must have also viewed Nettie, and possibly why, if he was her natural father, Damon was taking the time to teach the girl how to conduct herself in a more courtly manner. However, even if the gossips were correct and Damon had taken Nettles to his bed, the same gossips had previously reported the Queen's acceptance of her husband's infidelities and in and of itself, this probably wouldn't be reason enough to demand the girl's head. Instead, Rhaenyra demanded Nettie's head because she had, quote, been judged guilty of high treason. Never mind that she was essentially still a child and there had been no evidence of treason and no trial, none of which was lost on Manfred Mouton. Rhaenyra's message also cautioned that no harm must come to Prince Daemon, which left Lord Mouton in a quandary. Refuse and be branded a traitor by the queen his house had supported since the beginning of the war, or comply and be guilty of violating guest right, not to mention placing himself at the mercy of the guest he had been ordered not to harm. Prince Daemon Targaryen, whose fearsome dragon, was quartered in the castle yard. At his brother's suggestion that he kill them both, Lord Mouton pointed out that he had been ordered by the queen not to harm her consort, and the price for doing so might be his own head. Not to mention that killing two guests under his roof would result in his house being doubly cursed. But Maester Norrin, a young man of 22 years, had an idea, and he told Lord Mouton and the counselors that had been summoned to hear the letter to forget its contents while he contrived to solve the conundrum. The young maester waited until Prince Damon and Nettles had returned to their chamber that evening after another day of seeking and failing to find Aemon and Vagar. Approaching the prince, Maester Norrin gave him Rhaenyra's letter. He would later write in the Chronicle of Maidenpool, As he read, I saw the joy go from his eyes, and the sadness descended upon him like a weight too heavy to be borne. When the girl asked what was in the letter, he said, a queen's words, a whore's work. Then he drew his sword and asked if Lord Mouton's men were waiting outside to take them captive. In the previous installment of this series, we talked about Masseria, who was counseling Rhaenyra back in King's Landing. It was she who capitalized on the queen's paranoia to convince her to order Nettle's arrest, telling her, The girl has already betrayed you, my queen. Even now she shares your husband's bed, and soon enough she will have his bastard in her belly. At the time, we speculated that Mazaria might have been motivated by jealousy of Nettles given her own history with Damon, or spite, given that she had lost a child all those years ago after Viserys ordered Damon to send her away. 
In short, Mazaria might have had an axe to grind with House Targaryen in general, and Damon specifically. Damon's reaction to the letter, quote, a queen's words, a whore's work, probably referring to his wife and his mistress respectively, would seem to support that interpretation. Maester Norrin led Damon to believe that no one knew the contents of the letter but he himself, and at the prince's request, he agreed not to speak of it again until the next day. The following dawn found Damon in the castle yard with Nettles, helping her mount Sheepstealer, according to Norrin with tears on her face, and watching as she flew away. Norrin further reports that as girl and dragon disappeared into the mists in the direction of the Bay of Crabs, Caraxes gave a scream that shattered every window in Jonquil's tower. Before he himself departed the castle, Damon said farewell to his host, telling him he wouldn't be returning, but leaving no doubt as to his forwarding address. This is the last you will see of me. I thank you for your hospitality. Let it be known through all your lands that I fly for Harrenhal. If my nephew Aemon dares to face me, he will find me there alone. Rhaenyra's letter had tipped the scales towards ensuring that the most epic dragon battle of the war would finally take place. While Nettles flew into the mists of legend, Daemon flew towards what he must have known was certain death but he had no intention of going into whatever afterlife Targaryens believed in alone. If he had his way, his nephew Aemond would be joining him. Meanwhile, at Maidenpool, Lord Mooton ordered Rhaenyra's banner taken down, and in its place, the golden dragon of Aegon the Elder was raised. House Mooton, staunchly black since the beginning of the conflict, whose prior lord had been killed by Aegon's dragon Sunfire in the retaking of Rook's Rest after Princess Rhaenys' death, had declared for the Greens. Thirteen days. The seat of House Strong looms large in the history of the Dance of the Dragons. Harrenhal was, after all, the site of the Great Council of 101, the event we covered in the first episode of this series, the supposedly precedent-setting decision by the Lords of the Realm in which Daemon Targaryen's brother Viserys was chosen as the Old King's heir in favor of the son of his cousin Princess Rhaenys, Laenor Valerian. Harrenhal had changed hands several times during the dance itself. First, when Daemon took the castle as a base of operations to assemble black supporters in the Riverlands and as a way of luring the Greens from King's Landing. But when Daemon departed for King's Landing, having lured his nephew Aemon One-Eye and, most importantly, Vagar to confront him in the Riverlands, the castle fell once more, this time to the Greens. In the last installment, we talked about how he slaughtered all members of House Strong, including those with bastard blood, sparing only Alice Rivers who he instead took to his bed, and who we'll discuss more in a minute. The Greens left to fight the battle by the lakeshore, and Lady Sabbath Frey moved in, taking Alice Rivers captive, only to have to retreat hastily in turn when Aemon came back to burn the castle with dragon flame. Six knights and forty men-at-arms were killed trying to take out Vagar on that occasion, and every wooden structure in the castle was burned. Lady Sabbatha hid in a presumably stone privy, before making her retreat back to the twins, after Alice departed with her lover on his dragon. And so Harrenhal was in ruins and given over to squatters, presumably broken men from the war, when Damon arrived there with Caraxes. These men fled at the sound of dragon wings, no doubt familiar with the devastation Vagar had been causing around the Riverlands, and not eager to stick around to suffer yet another burning of Harrenhal. Damon spent nearly a fortnight alone in the ruined castle, with only Caraxes and his thoughts to keep him company. According to Fire and Blood, his steps took him to the castle Godswood every evening. 
Each night at dusk, he slashed the heart tree in the godswood to mark the passing of another day. Thirteen marks can be seen upon that weirwood still, old wounds, deep and dark, yet the lords who have ruled Harrenhal since Damon's day say they bleed afresh every spring. It's hard to say where the maesters might have heard this tale, given Damon was alone, but the evidence persists. Thirteen slashes, apparently made by Dark Sister, mark the tree to this day, numbering the days Prince Damon Targaryen spent awaiting his fate at the ruined castle by the lakeshore. On the fourteenth day, Aemon and Vagar arrived at last. Alice Rivers When Aemon arrived at Harrenhal on Vagar, he was accompanied by Alice Rivers, a woman we discussed briefly in our last installment, but who deserves a lot more attention. Alice was reportedly a bastard of House Strong, said by some to be a daughter of Lord Lionel, and by others to be someone who had served as wet nurse to his sons, or even to Lionel himself. Those making the latter claim, notably Mushroom, would also say that she was a sorceress who bathed in maiden's blood to retain a youthful appearance, though any such explanations would also have to acknowledge that she seems to have remained physically youthful as well, if her statements we're about to discuss are true. When Damon first captured Harrenhal early in the war, not much was said about Alice. She's mentioned as Aemon's lover during the time when the Greens temporarily repossessed the stronghold, and about this, some, again, probably led by Mushroom, pointed to sorcery or potions. But if she did possess these skills, she hadn't tried to exert them on Damon, so who knows? What we do know is that when Aemon left Harrenhal to march south with Kristen Cole, he left only Alice in the massive castle, as discovered by Lady Sabbath of Frey when she arrived three days later. Confronted in the castle godswood, Alice declared that Aemon had sired a son upon her. I have the dragon's bastard in me. I can feel his fire licking at my womb. The irony of Aemond, who spent his life hating his nephews for being, quote, strong bastards, fathering a bastard of his own upon a strong bastard, should be lost on no one. When Aemon and Vagar returned unexpectedly to Harrenhal, and Lady Sabatha retreated to the twins, Alice had escaped with her lover. She apparently went on to ride with Aemon during the time when he was described as, quote, the terror of the trident, flying about on mighty Vagar, burning first one and then another of the small holdfasts and settlements of black supporters scattered about the region. Perhaps it's significant that he never struck a major castle other than Harrenhal. He may have gone after the smaller castles to make examples of them for the more powerful lords to see, or perhaps he was just getting warmed up. And so the pair arrived at Harrenhal after nearly a fortnight's vigil by Damon in the deserted stronghold. Aemond is described as wearing night-black armor chased with gold, and Alice as her belly swollen with child. When Damon asked his nephew how he knew to come, Aemon said it was his lady who told him. She saw you in a storm cloud, in a mountain pool at dusk, in the fire we lit to cook our suppers. She sees much and more, my Alice. You are a fool to come alone. Damon asserted that Aemon wouldn't have come otherwise, but Aemon merely stated that his uncle had, quote, lived too long. Damon agreed, and given the description of the two as they mounted their dragons moments later, Aemon carefully strapped in with his safety chains and Damon's left dangling loose, it's obvious that Damon knew something Aemon did not. 
There are fates worse than death, and often there comes a time in a man's life when he must acknowledge the certainty of his own death in order to achieve his goals. And of course, let's not forget the obvious fact that Damon was far more experienced at dragon warfare than his nephew. Back to Alice, Aemon clearly stated that she had the gift of sight, Unlike the sorceress Melisandre of Ashai, who sees her visions in flames, however, Alice's powers don't seem to be limited to a single element, at least as far as Aemon is claiming. Whether or not she was being truthful with her royal lover, or was perhaps manipulating him for her own obscure ends, remembering that Damon had left a very clear forwarding address with Lord Mooton at Maidenpool, we may never know. What we do know is that she watched the ensuing battle between the two dragon riders from atop King's Pyre Tower, the tallest of Harrenhal's towers. The five towers of Harrenhal are famous for having been melted by the flames of Beleriand during the conquest. King Harrenhor and his sons, the last of the kings of the Isles and Rivers, died in King's Pyre, the event which gave the tower its name. There were apparently few other witnesses to the duel between Aemond and Daemon. Some fisherfolk, perhaps, and small folk who were miles away. And so we must likely thank Alice for much of the eyewitness account that comes down to us through the Maester's histories. Alice herself disappears from the historical record for two years, only to reappear in 132 AC, still at Harrenhal, and now with a son, whom she will claim is Aemon's true-born son. The prince had married her during their time roaming the Riverlands together, she'll say, though she certainly had declared the child to be a bastard when confronted by Lady Sabbath of Frey. That's a story for another time, though. On to the showdown. Damon versus Aemond. You were a fool to come alone. Were I not alone, you would not have come, said Damon. Yet you are, and here I am. You have lived too long, Nuncle. On that much we agree, Damon replied. Then the old prince bade Caraxes bend his neck and climb stiffly onto his back, whilst the young prince kissed his woman and vaulted lightly onto Vagar, taking care to fasten the four short chains between belt and saddle. Damon left his own chains dangling. Targaryens with similar sounding names is nothing special or new, but in this case it reflects how alike these two characters were. Both second sons, highly aggressive and ambitious, yet oddly loyal to their weaker older brother. Both fearless past the point of reason, especially when fueled by pride, which they had plenty of. Both had extremely interesting lovers of uncertain yet extremely compelling origin, whose fates continue past the Dance of the Dragons. And of course, both riders of two of the largest dragons in the realm. In Vagar's case, the largest of all, twice the size of Caraxes. How appropriate that they clashed above the largest lake in Westeros, as if it were a giant mirror of the myriad parallels. It said the water was still that day, the sun reflecting like beaten copper. But Damon had, as he hinted at by agreeing that he had lived too long already, years of experience over his nephew. This had given Damon perspective that Aemon likely hadn't grown into yet. And never would. Though he may have lacked the self-awareness earlier in life, it seems Damon understood at least some of what he had wrought with his many years. It may be that he was trying to atone in some small measure. For what he did to Westeros, he would die to prevent the realm from having to deal with a younger carbon copy version of himself. And who would be more suited to do that? This might be projecting too much altruism on a man who lived basically a bloodthirsty and selfish life. Pride can overwhelm even basic survival instincts, and that might be the biggest factor here. After Maidenpool, 
Damon might not have had much to live for. His own survival might not have been high on his list anymore. Age proved significant here in the moment of truth as well. Eamon likely thought he would triumph due to his fearlessness, the size of Vagar as compared to Caraxes, and perhaps most of all because of his youth. Not because it made him quicker or stronger. After all, that isn't likely to matter on Dragonback anyway, but because he lacked the wisdom, if not the inner fortitude, to face the reality that a fight between Caraxes and Vagar would most likely kill them both. Damon, if he was Eamon's age, might have had similar illusions, as we said, but at this point, he was 49 and likely well aware that this would be his final flight. He points out that Eamon would not have faced him if She-Stealer were along Caraxes, but he was clearly willing to go one-on-one, -on -one, perhaps believing that Vagar's great size was enough advantage, but Damon knew better. He had been counseling against direct dragon-on-dragon -dragon conflict since the war's outset, avoiding it whenever possible. But it wasn't possible to avoid in this case. Damon probably thought through all of this well ahead of time. As each day passed, as each cut was added to the Weirwood with Dark Sister, he gained another day to come to terms with the fact that he was counting down to his own death as well. Though surely he felt he had some small chance to survive. Maybe it wasn't an automatic death for him. Like, perhaps he's able to kill Amond without killing Vagar, just killing the rider and not the dragon. Again, his experience proved valuable and he got the upper hand quickly. As Aemon searched the skies for his uncle, Caraxes burst from behind cloud cover like a red thunderbolt, slamming into Vagar with massive force, striking the first blow while screaming loudly enough to be heard a dozen miles away. But this assault was not enough to make up for the disparity in size. Vagar was able to twist around and grab hold of Caraxes as he had grabbed hold of her. And the two dragons began to grapple in midair, becoming a great tangle of green and red. So intent were they on killing one another, they ceased to fly. Even as Vagar's claws raked her belly open and Vagar's own teeth ripped away a wing, Caraxes bit deeper, worrying at the wound as the lake rushed up below them with terrible speed. And it was then, the tales tell us, that Prince Daemon Targaryen swung a leg over his saddle and leapt from one dragon to the other. In his hand was Dark Sister, the sword of Queen Visenya. As Aemon One-Eye looked up in terror, fumbling with the chains that bound him to his saddle, Daemon ripped off his nephew's helm and drove the sword down into his blind eye, so hard the point came out the back of the young prince's throat. Half a heartbeat later, the dragon struck the lake sending up a gout of water that was said to have been as tall as Kingspire Tower. Perhaps it's ironic, if not Valyrian Steelic, that the rider of Rhaegar was killed by Dark Sister, given that the dragon and sword are both united by the memory of Queen Visenya. When two similar forces compete, a draw is the likely outcome. When those forces are sufficiently deadly, a draw equates to mutually assured destruction. We've seen enough to know that with dragons, this is a recurring pattern. Though adults can be near impervious to conventional weapons, their scales seldom grow thick enough to resist the teeth and talons of their own kind. Not to mention their wings have no armor at all, as we saw with Sunfire and now Caraxes. This was all well known and understood by Daemon, maybe not so much by Aemond. Aemond aimed to win and live on. And that ensured his failure because Daemon aimed to win and die. 
But it goes beyond that. Consider that Damon didn't have to leap across to stab his nephew. The dragons were locked together and wouldn't let go. Death was certain for all of them at the point he drove Dark Sister home. Did he do it for posterity? For the legend? And it seems to have worked. Damon only gained a fraction of a second more life than his nephew, but the singers and historians made him immortal. Forever the victor in what would otherwise look like a draw, as dragon duels often are. You might say, though, how could he know he'd be remembered this way if there were so few witnesses? Even those few likely couldn't have seen what Damon did from such a great distance. The answer to that laid at rest with Aemon's body, which laid beneath the god's eye for quite some time before being recovered. Again, we must cite the seatbelt chains for their role here, because Aemon's skeleton was found still firmly strapped into the saddle, with Dark Sister just as firmly lodged in his eye socket. So while it's possible no one actually saw Damon leap from saddle to saddle, how else could the sword have gotten there? There's not exactly a lot of possibilities here. It's too fun to doubt, anyway. True. There are a lot of parallels for A Song of Ice and Fire here, too. Aemon's sapphire eye reminds us of the others. Daenerys saw a vision of melting an army of ice at the Trident, which rests just north of the god's eye in Harrenhal. If the others and their armies reach that far south, they could devastate the Riverlands at least as much as Vagar did. If Euron rides a dragon, it'll be another villainous dragon rider with an eye patch. If Danny or Jon dies to end the threat of the others, it might resemble Daemon dying to kill Aemon, especially if there's an ice dragon or undead dragon involved. It's something we'll come back to eventually when the parallels are fully formed. In ancient days, both in our world and in Westeros, it was more common that matters could be decided by a combat of champions rather than a clash of armies. Aemon and Daemon represented this throwback tradition in a much grander fashion, but again, without the expected crowd or army on hand for such a showdown. As far as we know, nothing like this has ever happened before and surely hasn't since. It's incredible that so few were able to witness what must have been a truly unique event. But the God's Eye saw it, and perhaps whoever or whatever lives on the Isle of Faces. Caraxes lived long enough to crawl back out of the lake and expire on the shore, which would have served as undeniable proof to anyone who saw the body. Adam Valerian and others may have seen it. For some of those few who actually did see the battle, or just believed the stories afterwards, especially among those who believe in the old gods, it must have held significance that went beyond awe. With the blood of kings and dragons, with such great fires extinguished into the lake that lies in the very center of Westeros, some may have interpreted it as products of newer gods grandly sacrificed to the old. Or, for worshippers of the Seven, a fitting end to abominations. For the war, it held huge significance, though given the lack of witnesses, it would be some time before word spread to all corners. Here, we recall the sad death of Queen Helena. Though we described it last episode, it's not entirely clear when her death occurred in the timeline as compared to the events of this episode, but we can be pretty sure that this all happened fairly close together. It may have even been on the same day. If her death was by suicide and not murder, it's possible that she sensed the death of her brother Aemond and or Vagar, and that was one tragedy too many for her. There's a parallel here as well. Aemond and Daemon killed each other, falling to their deaths with their dragons, Caraxes and Vagar, and it was Helena falling to her death 
that sparked the riots in King's Landing, which led to the blacks losing the city in the ensuing anarchy, and the deaths of Helena and Rhaenyra's dragons, Dreamfire and Cyrax. Radio Westeros and History of Westeros are powered by patrons. And now, at the midpoint of the episode, it's time for us to take a moment to say thanks to the following. From the depths of Flea Bottom, Lord Ken of House Hammer has declared for Queen Carrie, Fire of the North, who recovered Dark Sister from beyond the wall. The Northern Champions, Jay Wilson, Winter's King, Winter's King, Lord of the First Men, Lady Air Artros, Mother of Wolves, Wielder of the Valyrian Stale Claymore, Manticore. Jake Snow, a.k.a. Jacob Isize, the Bastard of the Last River. Lord Darren of House Rambler, the Last Hunt is Ceaseless. Lady Bobby of House Mitchell, Gandalf the White, Lord of House Seaborn. Shari of Skane, last of the Long Night Archaeologists and wielder of untested hypothesis, a Valyrian steel trowel with a dragon bone handle. Lady Nicole of House Anime, the small can be powerful, captain of Sweet Camellia. Adelard the Wanderer, wielder of the Valyrian steel axe, Frostfall. The Bitter Steel, Aaron Snow, the evergreen bastard who made a vow to defend the North with his weirwood handled axe, Timberfell. And the Radio Westeros Valyrian Steel patrons, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, aka and the Company of the Cats, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blythe Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Kabethi and Frozen, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infandaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sathonian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Loreen, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Darla's of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Return to Tumbleton. As if the people of Tumbleton hadn't suffered enough, the carnage and cruelty in the aftermath of the first battle were to such a degree that it's almost surprising to hear there was anyone left for a second round. Wasn't the town essentially destroyed? Yes. Yes, it was. But the victors were still present, taking their time, looting every house, taking everything of value. Gildane tells us, Seldom has any town or city in the history of the Seven Kingdoms been subject to as long or as cruel or as savage a sack as Tumbleton after the treasons. The rape and pillage of the town was brutal. Even holy septas and silent sisters weren't spared. Men were tortured to reveal where money was hidden, and the dead went unburied. Even amongst the nobility, usually governed by rules of chivalry and ransoms to be paid, brutality was the word of the day. Bold John Roxton took a fancy to Lord Footley's wife and cut her husband in two with his Valyrian steel sword orphan maker when he protested. Even after learning that King's Landing was in chaos, which occurred in part because of their victory here at Tumbleton, such was the bloodlust of the soldiery that their leaders were unable to quell the violence. Perhaps because they were taking part in it themselves. In addition to John Roxton's appalling behavior, Lord Peak stabbed Lord Owain Borney, the man who had opened the castle gates to the Greens during the battle, in the eye during an argument at a war council. It was truly a wasted opportunity to end the war quickly, especially now that Queen Rhaenyra was in flight, though 
Not literally, she had lost her dragon as well as her throne. Let's not forget, as the lords of Westeros surely did not, that an inability to capitalize appeared to be a developing pattern for the Greens. Recall that they had a huge advantage when the war began and squandered that as well. Then again, blowing advantages and ruling poorly was what Queen Rhaenyra had just done as well, further underscoring that there was no good choice for the nobility. For once, they were as powerless as the common folk. It seemed as if, for the war to end, one side would have to wipe out the other. But since neither seemed capable of accomplishing that, it meant that both sides would keep going until they lost so much that exhaustion and attrition would hopefully, and finally, bring them to negotiate a peace. And it did seem like the dragons and Targaryens were dying at a rate fast enough that it couldn't go on much longer if that pace continued. The army's inaction was owed in part to leadership. Lack of it, really. As we mentioned last time, the deaths of Lord Ormond and Sir Brendan Hightower may have been crucial, especially given who replaced them. Lords Peak, Roxon, and Borny all claimed the right to take command of the Green Army, but command instead fell to Sir Hobart Hightower. A cousin of the late Lord Ormond, Sir Hobart had been in charge of the baggage train before his kinsman's untimely death. He took command of the army based solely on his last name. As Gildane puts it, Hobart Hightower had lived 60 years without distinguishing himself, yet now he presumed to take command of the host by right of his kinship to Queen Alicent. In spite of these leadership issues, the Greens were feeling confident given the recent major victories. None more so than the two betrayers. Confident comes woefully short of describing their states of mind, actually. The dominant presence seemed to be Hardhue Hammer. An imposing man with a huge dragon, Vermithor, once King Jaehaerys' mount. It seems that all of this had gone to his head. Prince Daron the Daring wanted them all to advance on King's Landing. He was the voice of reason despite his youth, but the others wanted to wait for a variety of differing reasons. Sir Hobart wanted to wait for supplies to arrive from the south. Lord Unwin Peak wanted to wait for the Baratheon army to reinforce them. Ulf the White, rider of Silverwing, was also becoming quite arrogant and ambitious, but he seemed content to follow Hammer's lead and get drunk. That's really what he wanted most. As we've seen over and over, when armies are stationary for too long, serious problems arise. Armies befoul the nearby land, the water gets toxic, the food becomes scarce and lower in quality, disease breaks out and spreads quickly. With that come desertions and deaths to the diseases. Those who remain in the army have severely reduced morale. Worse, perhaps, the inaction allowed the blacks to salvage their dwindling chances and gather a new army. Surprisingly, this came about due to the efforts of a single man one who stayed loyal to the queen even though she had betrayed him with an unjust accusation of treason. Loyal. Of all the allies Rhaenyra had fallen out with, none were more powerful than the Sea Snake, and one might think only a major player such as him capable of rallying the blacks from the brink of defeat. However, it wasn't him, but his son or grandson, depending on which tale you believe, Adam Valerian. Recall that Corlys had warned Adam to flee, which he did on his dragon sea smoke. While the moon of the three kings raged in the capital, Adam built a new army, and he built it quickly. Moving from castle to castle rapidly, as only a dragon rider can, he combined his skills at oration, his natural charisma, and horrible tales of what the Greens did at Tumbleton to great effect. 
The tables had turned. Otto Hightower's scheme to prevent Daemon Targaryen from ascending to the throne for fear he'd be another Maegor the Cruel, then schemed to keep Rhaenyra from the throne in part due to her children being bastards who would inherit next. Now the Greens appeared to be giving very high positions to lowborn bastard dragon riders, possibly the highest of all, while committing atrocities very much worthy of Maegor himself. The Greens had become that which they claimed the Blacks would be. Or perhaps they had been that way all along and had given up on concealing it. All this and more Adam Valerian pointed out to the River Lords eloquently and passionately. For those who could claim to have been wronged by the Queen, Adam could say that he had been wronged even more so. She tried to arrest him, and she did arrest Lord Corliss, yet still he fought on for her. With these entreaties, he formed a new army, even as the First Battle of Tumbleton was progressing, and King's Landing descended into near anarchy. While Aemon flew about making enemies, Adam flew about gathering allies. A curious anecdote is included here, the suggestion that Adam flew to the Isle of Faces to consult with the Green Men. This is odd for several reasons. What would drive him to think counsel could be found there in the first place? He's a Valerian of Driftmark with no connection whatsoever to the Old Gods. What would he be hoping to learn? Perhaps he had been to see them before. As a dragon rider, who knows where he had been prior to this phase of the war, but nothing of the sort is suggested in the sources. It's merely our thought. Perhaps he sought information about the original pact between the Children of the Forest and the First Men, believing there could be some insight there to help in the current war. Or maybe he'd heard of Greenseers and sought a vision or prediction of the future. But if you ask us, I'm not sure you look to the Green Men for help against the Greens. Though, with sea smoke staring them down, they might be happy to do whatever was needed to get that dragon to leave. It would be a shame if something happened to those weirwoods. Adam seemed like a decent person, and he may have beseeched them for help in return for something of use to them. But he might not have been above some veiled threats to get what he needed either. Even decent people can justify a lot when saving their family is in the balance. Threatening to burn heart trees unless they help him? He might have been desperate enough to try that. Does this all sound a bit far-fetched? Yeah, a bit, actually. But why include this story at all in Fire and Blood? The maesters aren't known to give credibility to unsupported or supernatural tales, so perhaps there's more evidence for this than first appears. It might be best to consider that this story is in line with the one about Prince Jaceres and Sarah Snow and eggs in the crypts of Winterfell, a story that might have a grain of truth to it, but is obscured in such a way that makes locating that grain difficult. More clues might emerge later on to help us narrow it down. But the use of the term ice and fire will keep us curious for sure. The very fact that the story exists at all is curious. Among other things they have in common, Adam and Eamon's stories both could have a mystical element. The Riverlands is a land where many of the old powers can still be found, after all. Of course, there's also a wonderfully prosaic explanation for Adam's visit to the Isle. As we mentioned earlier, when Aemond and Daemon fought on Dragonback over the God's Eye, very few were on hand to witness it. Alice Rivers in Kingspire Tower at Harrenhal, perhaps a few small folk or fisher folk, and whoever lives on the Isle of Faces. Adam escaped King's Landing and flew to the Riverlands the same day Rhaenyra sent her message demanding Nettles' head to Lord Mooton. We know the battle above the God's Eye took place just over a fortnight later, as Adam flew about the Riverlands then, surely he would have encountered rumors of a climactic dragon fight and the deaths of princes. And where would you go for news if the empty castle of Harrenhal wasn't giving up its secrets? 
How about to the mysterious green man who would have had ringside seats to this decisive duel? Perhaps then, Adam was seeking confirmation that Damon and Aemon and their dragons were dead. News that the Greens' largest draconic advantage was no longer a threat would surely have gone a long ways towards helping him assemble those Riverlanders into an army. What's interesting is that Adam and Aemon clearly didn't cross paths as they both went from castle to castle during those couple of weeks. Had Aemon been able to interfere with or ruin Adam's plans, it might have saved the lives of many of his allies, including some of his family. But for whatever reason, Aemon continued to believe that his best contribution to the war effort was burning mainly non-military targets. Sea Smoke made the quick trips between castles possible, but it still took significant time to gather sufficient men. By the time Sir Adam was ready to descend on Tumbleton, he had near 4,000 men at his back. Benjicott Blackwood, the 12-year-old Lord of Raventree, had come forth, as had the widowed Sabbath of Frey, Lady of the Twins, with her father and brothers of House Viperin. Lords Stanton Piper, Joseph Smallwood, Derek Darry, and Lionel Deddings had scraped together fresh levies of greybeards and green boys, though all had suffered grievous losses in the autumn's battles. Hugo Vance, the young lord of Wayfarer's Rest, had come with three hundred of his own men, plus Black Trombo's mirish sellswords. Most notably of all, House Tully had joined the war. Sea Smoke's descent upon River Run had at last persuaded that reluctant warrior, Sir Elmo Tully, to call his banners for the Queen, in defiance of the wishes of his bedridden grandsire, Lord Grover. A dragon in one's courtyard does wonders to resolve one's doubts, Sir Elmo was reported to have said. And so, they marched on Tumbleton. But the Greens hadn't been idle during the time this army formed. Not entirely, anyway. The hammer and the cup. Earlier we said that when it comes to dragon riders, the lords and commoners were near equal in powerlessness, such as the advantage of a dragon on the battlefield and the threat of one off it. In the case of Ulf the White and Hardhue Hammer, the commoners were the dragon lords. For society where the nobility were recognized as superior to commoners in all ways, this was likely incredibly galling to some. Many lords of the Green faction, despite their greater wealth and prestigious ancestry, their lands and honors, absolutely hated that two commoners had jumped so high above them in martial prowess via these dragons. That they rode the exact two dragons of the greatest pair of rulers ever seen, Jaehaerys and Alisan, could not have been lost on them and would have greatly increased their irritation. The situation escalated quickly, as Ulf and Hugh took liberty upon liberty, quickly setting their sights higher and higher. They didn't take much notice of how many enemies this made them. Only one of them was constantly drunk on wine, but they were both drunk on power. The enemies they'd made were very dangerous men from very powerful families whose interests were at stake here as well. The last straw seems to have been when the pair announced their ultimate intentions. They had just gotten word that Aemon was dead, and Vagar as well, but Aegon II was still alive as far as they knew, despite no word from him in some time. Ulf the White said he wanted to be Lord of Highgarden. The holder of that seat is traditionally Overlord of the Reach itself. Ulf the White was effectively telling all the gathered lords from the Reach, Peak, Hightower, Bossaway, Roxton, and the rest, Hey, you all owe me fealty now. Me, a lowborn drunk. That's right, kneel to me. Hugh Hammer went even farther than that. 
No mere lordship would be good enough for him, in spite of the fact that many of the lords in the army wanted to name Daron Prince of Dragonstone immediately, or even to declare him king, based on Aegon's long absence. But Hugh wanted the Iron Throne himself, and had even begun wearing an Iron Crown. Prince Daron was understandably upset. This was effectively another betrayal by Hard Hugh, and a quite brazen one. Hammer essentially told the prince to his face that he would be pushing House Targaryen aside, himself included. Daron responded by throwing wine back in his face. Hammer treated the Dragon Rider Prince as one would a child, essentially ignoring the insult as if it were a mere tantrum. And I suspect that this upset Daron even more. And here the story takes an unusual twist as prophecy entered the fray. It said a new king would arise when the hammer fell upon the dragon. Who did he plan on dropping the hammer on? Not Daron, we suppose, since the wine barely seemed to bother him. He treated Daron like a child, simply threatening to beat him. By minimizing Daron, he placed himself above him. He was a much bigger man on a much bigger dragon. Perhaps he thought the hammer would reforge the throne, so to speak, or House Targaryen itself. Regardless, it's not hard to see why Hardhue Hammer thought the prophecy referred to him, nor that many others believed it as well. There's an almost straightforward quality to it. But we also know it came true much later when Robert Baratheon's hammer fell directly on the dragon on Rhaegar's breastplate, sending those famous rubies scattering. But of course, no one knew who either of those people were back in this time. What they saw was a huge, battle-tested man riding Vermithor, now the largest dragon in the known world, once ridden by Jaehaerys, the greatest King Westeros had ever seen. And now, Hugh Hammer had a prophecy behind him, too. Westeros respects strength, even more so in times of great chaos and strife, as these were, especially at Dumbleton. Those who saw Hammer might not have known much about him, but just to see him was to be certain he was strong. With that iron crown on his head, massive hammer in hand, and likely a fine suit of armor required by this time, he would have cut a striking figure. Yet still, the attitude of many a high-born lord was contempt. A knight named Sir Roger Corn knocked the crown from Hugh's head and told him he should be wearing a horseshoe instead. A scuffle ensued and ended with three horseshoes being nailed to Corn's head. Talk about bringing things to a head. The gathered lords of the Reach knew they were running out of time. Hard Hugh was likely to gain more and more followers as word spread of his intentions and prowess, and he was clearly willing to kill anyone in his way. He didn't just look the part, he had proved he was as dangerous as he seemed. Ulf the White was, on the other hand, less than he seemed. A man who's passed out as often as him shouldn't be too hard to deal with, given their resources, though some few had some shreds of honor remaining. One way or another, though, they had to be dealt with. The Caltrops. The lords in the Green Army and the ruins of Tumbleton had a mighty conundrum to deal with. They needed the dragons to take King's Landing and otherwise win the war, but they couldn't stand the thought of common-born men raised above them in station or power, so they resorted to a method used by so many elites in real and fictional history. Get them to do your dirty work for you, then murder them afterwards. Caltrops are pieces of metal a lot like Game of Jacks, where no matter how they land, one point is sticking upwards. Except unlike jacks, which are blunt, caltrops are sharp, and they're intended to be used as weapons. They're not for use in any game, except possibly the Game of Thrones. 
They also use this name simply because they plan their conspiracy in the cellar of an inn called the Bloody Caltrops. It must not have been entirely destroyed like so many other buildings in Tumbleton were. Caltrops are also, of course, sharp, like we said, and several of these men were too, but definitely not all of them. Thirteen nobles, including Lord Unwin Peak, Bold John Roxton, and Sir Hulbert Hightower, gathered in the inn's basement and argued how to solve their dilemma. Their solution, so they thought, enabled them to be rid of the lowborn dragon riders and their pretensions while keeping the dragons as weapons. What kind of ingenious plan would allow them to accomplish so much? Well, by killing Ulf and Hugh and riding their dragons themselves. Simple as that. Surely if those two could ride dragons, they could too. Hmm. The plotters agreed to the bold plan and then sent for Prince Daron to get his approval. For the killings, that is. They didn't seem to mention that several of them would be trying to become the new riders of Vermithor and Silverwing afterwards. And we're told he eagerly signed his name to the plan. With that, everything was set. In only two days, they'd make their move. But they should have done it in one. Because in the early morning, before dawn, on the designated day, hours before they were set to strike, Adam Valerion struck first. Sir Adam's night attack took them completely unawares. Before the men of Prince Damon's army even knew they were in a battle, the enemy was amongst them, cutting them down as they staggered from their tents, as they were saddling their horses, struggling to don their armor, buckling their sword belts. Most devastating of all was the dragon. Sea smoke came swooping down again and yet again, breathing flame. A hundred tents were soon afire. Even the splendid silken pavilions of Sir Hobart Hightower, Lord Unwin Peak, and Prince Daron himself. Again, the power of a single dragon is displayed here. With so many tents set afire, with so much flame and chaos and confusion and stampeding horses, many were killed in just this initial assault. Sir Hobart and Lord Unwin managed to escape the burning of their pavilions, but Prince Daron the Daring did not. It's actually not entirely clear exactly how he died. There are three different versions of the tale, but the stories seem to agree he was killed before he could escape his tent, or immediately thereafter, though his body was never found. Thus, in a very short span, Daron joined his siblings Helena and Amond in death, while their remaining sibling lay severely wounded and out of action for now. Darren was the first major casualty of the battle, with many more to follow. His dragon, Tessarion, was now riderless, but that wouldn't stop her from joining the battle that followed in earnest. The Second Battle of Tumbleton Though the army of rivermen that came upon them was much smaller than their own, the Reachmen were caught completely off guard. The sources point out that the loss of Lord Ormond as overall commander may have led to this debacle. It's hard to disagree. This was an undisciplined army. Its leaders were so intent on killing each other, they hadn't looked for the enemy until it was too late. Really, they could have done both. Still, the Caltrops stayed the course. Even as Sea Smoke continued to strafe them, bold John Roxton decided this, of all times, was the best moment to kill Hammer. Hugh was yelling for a horse so he could ride to Vermithor and fight off the attack, and Roxton seized his chance. Note that his name is Bold John Roxton, not Bright John Roxton. The Caltrops were already planning on murdering the man. Why not let him fight off this attack first? Why not let Vermithor drive off the much smaller sea smoke? But no, Roxton cut down Hammer with his Valyrian steel blade, Orphan Maker, with one quick slash. John must have known Hugh would never see it coming. True, because it was 
basically suicidal as far as we can tell. Not only did they need help against the enemy dragon, Hammer had quite a few men right there with him. Bold John was thinking too much about how surprising it would be and not how terrible the consequences would be, which for his allies were severe, and for him, they were fatal. Hughes' men cut him down in turn a few moments later. He'd been outnumbered badly, and just as the element of surprise had worked for Adam Valerian, it had worked for Bold John, but not well enough. Perhaps Bold John thought Ulf the White would be enough to win them the day, as Silverwing was a larger dragon than Sea Smoke, but this was a pre-dawn attack. So of course, Ulf the Sot was sleeping off another night of drinking. He missed the entire battle. He never even knew it happened until after. That's quite a thing to sleep through. And they did try to wake him, but he just rolled over. Or perhaps Bold John was counting on Prince Daron and Tessarion to duel Sea Smoke. But as we saw, Prince Daron was killed in the early chaos of the battle, well before he could even think of mounting his dragon. In fact, he might have still been in his sleeping clothes when he died. It was going well for the Blacks. A surprise attack at the perfect time, with two of the three enemy dragon riders now eliminated and the other passed out. But this was an army led by young people. I mean, heck, one of them is a Muppet. And that inexperience seems to have showed in what came next. Perhaps because they didn't realize their riders were already out of the fight, some of the attackers took their shots at Vermithor and Silverwing while they were asleep. We can classify this as bold John Roxton-style thinking, a failure to consider the counterattack. It was probably smarter to focus on the enemy army and hope the dragons just stayed out of it, but maybe they figured the dragons were going to enter the battle one way or another, so they might as well get in some damage while they can? Regardless, it didn't go well. The Rivermen didn't do much damage, while Vermithor and Silverwing did. And Tessarion, perhaps in a fury over her rider's death or for some reason only Septon Barfs could hope to perceive, decided to contend with Sea Smoke. History calls the struggle between Aegon II and his half-sister Rhaenyra the Dance of the Dragons, but only at Tumbleton did the dragons ever truly dance. Tessarion and Sea Smoke were young dragons, nimbler in the air than their older kin. Time and time again they rushed one another, only to have one or the other veer away at the last instant. Soaring like eagles, stooping like hawks, they circled, snapping and roaring, spitting fire, but never closing. Once, the Blue Queen vanished into a bank of cloud, only to reappear an instant later, diving on Sea Smoke from behind to scorch his tail with a burst of cobalt flame. Meanwhile, Sea Smoke rolled and banked and looped. One instant he would be below his foe, and suddenly he would twist in the sky and come around behind her. Higher and higher the two dragons flew as hundreds watched from the roofs of Tumbleton. One such said afterward that the flight of Tessarion and Sea Smoke seemed more mating dance than battle. Perhaps it was. The dance ended when Vermithor rose roaring into the sky. Thanks to the wounds he had suffered earlier, he was angry. And without a rider, he had no allegiance. It was just Vermithor versus everyone. Everyone in this case started with Lords Piper and Deddings, who were incinerated along with their retinues. Sir Adam saw this and bravely moved to prevent the Bronze Fury from doing further damage, slamming into him from above with sea smoke. The smaller dragon might have been able to fly off again, evading his much larger, slower, and now quite wounded foe, but they had been close to the ground when they slammed together and hit the earth before they could soar off to safety. And on the ground, despite the terrible wounds he had suffered to this point, Vermithor was inexorable. 
Picture the dragon version of Oberyn in the mountain. With space to maneuver, the swifter dragon, like the swifter viper, had a chance. But wrestling in the mud? Not so much. Surprisingly, the Blue Queen joined the fray, and we're not sure even Septon Barth could answer why this time, though again it could be the loss of her rider that motivated her. Her final fight has a tragic berserker death charge feel to it. Some will claim that the bond between a dragon and a dragon rider runs so deep that the beast shares his master's loves and hates. But who was the ally here, and who the enemy? Does a riderless dragon know friend from foe? We shall never know the answers to those questions. All that history tells us is that three dragons fought amidst the mud and blood and smoke of Second Tumbleton. Sea Smoke was the first to die when Vermithor locked his teeth into his neck and ripped his head off. Afterward, the bronze dragon tried to take flight with his prize still in his jaws, but his tattered wings could not lift his weight. After a moment, he collapsed and died. Tessarion, the Blue Queen, lasted until sunset. Apparently, she would have lasted a bit longer, but after it became clear that she was dying, Bloody Ben had her finished off with arrows. Sadly, Adam Valarian was crushed between the bodies of the dragons as they wrestled in the mud. He gave his life to prove loyalty above and beyond what his queen perhaps deserved. It's unjust that he had redeemed himself, having committed no crimes whatsoever, but not only did he loudly clean his name, history remembers him as a hero. Silverwing, the fourth dragon at the battle, simply never got involved except to fight off the knights that came for her. This could be another example of the bond driving the dragon's behavior. Ulf slept through the battle, so maybe the sense of peace or numbness kept her from getting involved. The sources don't say it, but maybe she rolled over just like he did and gave the dragon roar equivalent of, I don't wanna, dragon snooze alarm, that kind of thing. But after they actually attacked her, she roused. Silverwing, good Queen Alessand's mountain days of old, had taken to the sky as the carnage began, circling the battlefield for hours, soaring on the hot winds rising from the fires below. Only after dark did she descend to land beside her slain cousins. Later, singers would tell of how she thrice lifted Vermithor's wing with her nose, as if to make him fly again, but this is most like a fable. A very sad fable. Those singers. Still, Silverwing had a very different reaction to blood in battle than we might have expected. Clearly, not all dragons respond in the same way. Thanks in part to the loss of sea smoke, the rivermen were unable to fully capitalize on their victory. A dragon would have had no trouble with the walls. Tumbleton endured two battles in short order, but it wasn't sacked twice. The rivermen lost only about a hundred, while the greens lost over a thousand. Since the blacks had no way to attack the town, though, they claimed the spoils of war left outside, including horses and a lot of equipment. The Spoils of War did not include Bold John Roxton's famous Blackblade Orphan Maker, though. Four of the 13 Caltrops survived the battle and retreated inside the walls. One of those four was Lord Unwin Peak, and he emerged from the chaos of Second Tumbleton as its new owner. Bloody Ben took the body of Adam Valarian to Raven Tree Hall, where they rested until about seven years after the war ended. His brother Alan, by then known as Oakenfist, retrieved his bones and buried them at Hull, 
the town of their birth. On his tomb, he wrote but one word, loyal, carved in ornate letters with a seahorse for House Valarian and a mouse for their mother. A toast to losing. Though they still held Tumbleton, the Greens had lost badly, but Ulfwhite's well-considered plan to sleep through the battle had clearly worked. Seasmoke, Vermithor, and Tessarian were dead, as were Daron, Hammer, and Adam Valerian. And Ulf didn't have to do anything at all. The last man standing game played so perfectly that his fortunes seemed to improve while he was passed out, even as his allies were being slaughtered around him. Phase two for him was to play heir to Hammer's claim. Why not follow through with the original plan, but with himself as king instead? It would be even easier with Prince Daron out of the way, thought Ulf the White. And with Silverwing barely harmed in the battle through sheer attrition, Ulf now had the largest dragon of anyone left. He told the Reach Lords who remained of his plan, and they appeared to agree. At least he wasn't after Highgarden anymore. But they were still intent on their plan of assassinating him. The Second Battle of Tumbleton had been bloody for the Caltrops. They had been 13 and were now 4. Aside from Unwin Peak, another of those remaining was Sir Hobart Hightower, and he met with Ulf to discuss their assault on King's Landing. With him, he brought two casks of wine, an ordinary sour red and a deadly arbor gold. One cup and Ulf would be dead, but Hobart was apparently no actor, and the weight of his task began to show via body language. Enough so that Ulf grew suspicious at all the sweating and stammering and demanded that Sir Hobart drink the arbor gold first. Amazingly, Sir Hobart Hightower did just so, and a man who had never shown bravery in combat went bravely to his death via drinking, downing a whole cup and accomplishing his task in doing so. Ulf never suspected Hobart would drink poison, and he quickly outpaced Sir Hobart's drinking, and so his heart stopped first. It was a peaceful death. Apparently, he fell asleep before dying. In many ways, it was like the death of Hugh Hammer, as the killers of the two betrayers died within moments of their respective murders. Ulf the White, claimant to the throne and rider of Silverwing, if ever there was a man who died doing what he loved, it was him. And of all the many claimants to the throne throughout the dance, his was the briefest, lasting about a day or so. The Caltrop's plan had succeeded, though now they were down to three. Their army was significantly reduced as well, but still formidable enough to be a threat. It might even be enough to take King's Landing in its current state of anarchy, especially if they could find a new rider for Silverwing, which was next on Lord Peak's agenda. Afterward, Lord Unwin Peak offered a thousand golden dragons to any knight of noble birth who could claim Silverwing. Three men came forth. When the first had his arm torn off and the second burned to death, the third man reconsidered. By that time, Peak's army, the remnants of the great host that Prince Daron and Lord Ormond Hightower had led all the way from Old Town, was falling to pieces as deserters fled Tumbleton by the score with all the plunder they could carry. We have no word on who those two men were. Neither were Lord Peak, but it's possible one of the other two Caltrops gave it a go. Not only had they failed to claim Silverwing, whom they felt they needed to take the city, their army was getting smaller. The endeavor essentially collapsed from there. Lord Peak was not blind to this and ordered a retreat back to the Reach, back to friendly territory. Silverwing, apparently left to her own devices, also retreated to the Reach. 
Some months later, it would become known that she had made a lair on a stony island in the middle of Red Lake, an area basically due west of Tumbleton. Perhaps the rocky isle reminded her of Dragonstone, where she had hatched and spent so much of her life. She was certainly left alone there, which is probably all she wanted. Amazingly, King's Landing was also left alone and remained in its unprecedented state of self-rule and anarchy. But not far to the east, a showdown was about to take place. Return to Dragonstone The burned king and the maimed dragon each found new purpose in the other. From a hidden lair on the desolate eastern slopes of the Dragonmont, Aegon ventured forth each day at dawn, taking to the sky again for the first time since Rook's rest, while the two Toms and their cousin Marston Waters returned to the other side of the island to seek out men willing to help them take the castle. Way back in episode 3 of this series, we discussed how, when Rhaenyra left Dragonstone to take King's Landing, her half-brother fled the city and hid himself away on Dragonstone. For months, not a hint revealed where Aegon might be hiding, other than a brief sighting of a golden dragon fighting with Grey Ghost on the far side of the Dragon Mount by some Valentine sailors. Fortunately for Aegon, the only person who realized what that meant was Tom Tangleton, cousin of Sir Marston Waters, the knight who had brought him to the island. Reuniting the still-wounded king with his dragon seems to have been almost as therapeutic as getting him off his daily addiction to Milk of the Poppy. While King and Dragon continued to recuperate from their injuries in secret on the far side of the island, Tom Tangletongue, his father Tom Tanglebeard, and Sir Marston sought out people in the town and castle garrison who could be turned to Aegon's cause. They were fortunate enough to come across Sir Alfred Broom, a longtime retainer at Dragonstone, who was full of resentment that Sir Robert Quince had been chosen as Castellan over himself. It was easy enough to bribe him with promises of gold and honors and then capitalize on his knowledge of the rest of the men of the garrison so that the men planning what would become a coup could target only those who were the most loyal to Rhaenyra. And so, even as Rhaenyra worried about betrayers in her midst at King's Landing and the shepherd began his ravings in Cobbler Square, Marston Waters and Alfred Broom led the capture of Dragonstone Castle in the name of Aegon the Elder. Robert Quince was murdered in his bed, and Maester Gerardus, sent back to Dragonstone by the Queen due to his vocal support of Adam Valerian in the wake of the betrayers, was taken captive to prevent news of the coup escaping. Only one thing did not go as planned. Lady Bela Targaryen. When the conspirators tried to break down her chamber door, still locked at the command of Sir Robert, Lady Bela slipped out the window and made her way to the stable yard, where she was able to release and saddle her dragon, Moondancer, rising into the air just as her cousin Aegon arrived on Sunfire, no doubt expecting an easy and triumphant descent into the castle yard. Instead, he found Bela, fierce as her father, and Moondancer, both waiting. Though Moondancer was younger and significantly smaller than Sunfire, she was also quicker and hadn't been recovering from a grievous injury for half a year as the Golden Dragon had. The larger dragon still struggled with the wounded wing from Rook's rest and now had numerous fresh wounds from his recent battle with Grey Ghost. In the air, Moondancer was able to inflict more damage upon her adversary, but once they began roaring flames at each other, their airborne fight became harder to control, and the two dragons slammed into the castle yard. On the ground, the heavier dragon was much more formidable, and before long, the smaller Moondancer was overcome. 
Even so, when Sunfire tried to roar his victory, he collapsed to the ground, pouring hot black blood from numerous wounds. And what of the riders? Dragon fighting is a terribly vicious and dangerous thing, as we've seen, and the humans involved often fare even worse than their mounts. Lady Bela, Gildane tells us, managed to stay on Moon Dancer throughout, somehow finding the strength to disentangle herself from the saddle and crawl, burned and battered, away from her dead dragon. When Alfred Broom would have killed her, Sir Marston Waters seized his sword and had Tom Tangletongue bring her to the maesters. Her cousin did not fare as well. Having suffered terrible burns and many broken bones at Rook's Rest, and probably thinking to save himself from being burned by Dragonfire once again, he had jumped clear of Sunfire while he was still 20 feet in the air, shattering both legs. Once again, Aegon found himself experiencing what should have been a moment of triumph in agonizing pain. Sunfire was left in the castle yard where he had fallen, feeding off the remains of Moondancer and later part of Maester Gerardus after a ghoulish execution in which he was hanged by his chain of office that Rhaenyra had pulled from Orwile's neck all those months ago. Three times Gerardus was taken down and allowed to catch his breath before being strung up again. Finally, he was disemboweled and Sunfire was allowed to devour his lower extremities. The rest, Aegon declared would be left to greet my sweet sister on her return. There's no place like home. In the previous episode, we left Rhaenyra aboard the Bravosi ship Violande, heading for Dragonstone. After her flight from King's Landing, she had found only lukewarm support in the Crownlands and, rather than seek shelter further afield, had decided to return to Dragonstone with her small party, thinking that there she would find dragon eggs and the possibility of a new dragon, which in her opinion was one thing she absolutely must have in order to be victorious over her half-brother, wherever he was. In spite of the fact that no answer came from Gerardus on Dragonstone to the messages she sent, or perhaps because no answer came, since she took the silence to be a sign of disloyalty, rather than the very ominous signal it actually was, Rhaenyra sold her crown and bought passage to Dragonstone. Little did she know that her messages had been received by none other than her half-brother Aegon, and so, unsuspecting, and accompanied only by three knights of her queen's guard, her young son Aegon, and a handful of ladies, Rhaenyra arrived at Dragonstone. Imagine how you feel at the end of a long, stressful journey. You've been away from home for weeks, your flight got delayed, no one's been answering the phone, and there's no ride at the airport, so you have to take a two-hour Uber to get there. This is Rhaenyra returning to Dragonstone times a thousand. Her relief at finally arriving home to a place of safety where she could recoup from the past several months was short-lived. Her party was met at the docks by 40 men under the command of Sir Alfred Broom. Though Rhaenyra asked about Sir Robert Quince, there was no hint of the betrayal she had already suffered until they reached the castle. And there was Sir Robert, her castellan, alongside her steward, master-at-arms, captain of the guards, and grandmaster Gerardus, all hanging from the castle wall, Gerardus's corpse burned and devoured from the waist down. Her son Aegon realized what was happening and shouted for his mother to run, but it was too late and the Queen's party was quickly overwhelmed by Sir Alfred's men. Brought through the castle gates at Spear Point, the first thing Rhaenyra saw was Sunfire the Golden, mortally wounded in the castle yard, unable to fly, and with black blood hissing from multiple wounds. He was a wreck, and no doubt Rhaenyra was confused and horrified, as both Septon Eustace and Mushroom indicate, but both agree that she had little time to react further before her half-brother revealed himself from a balcony above. 
Unable to walk or even stand, he had been carried there in a chair. The hip shattered at Rook's rest had left Aegon bent and twisted. His once handsome features had grown puffy from milk of the poppy, and burn scars covered half his body. Yet, Rhaenyra knew him at once. As words of greeting go, Dear brother, I had hoped that you were dead, perhaps fails the test of welcoming a long-lost family member. But as retorts go, after you, you are the elder, is a winner. It seems like Rhaenyra had expected her half-brother to make her a prisoner, and she definitely declared that her leal lords would find her, but again, Aegon had a reply ready. If they search the seven hells, mayhaps. And then he proved that he was the equal to his brother Aemon the Kingslayer, as his men dragged Rhaenyra from Aegon the Younger's arms. Accounts differ as to whether it was Sir Alfred Broom who did the deed or the two Toms. I'll agree that Sir Martin Waters, now elevated to the Kingsguard in gratitude for his service, looked on as witness. No matter who did the actual dragging, none protested as Aegon had his sister delivered to his dragon. Sunfire, it is said, did not seem at first to take any interest in the offering until Broom pricked the queen's breast with his dagger. The smell of blood roused the dragon, who sniffed at her grace, then bathed her in a blast of flame, so suddenly that Sir Alfred's cloak caught fire as he leapt away. Rhaenyra Targaryen had time to raise her head toward the sky and shriek out one last curse upon her half-brother before Sunfire's jaws closed round her, tearing off her arm and shoulder. Septon Eustace tells us that the golden dragon devoured the queen in six bites, leaving only her left leg below the shin for the stranger. It was an execution worthy of Rhaenyra's future descendant, Ares II. Her ladies-in-waiting were so horrified that it said one of them, Alinda Massey, gouged her eyes out. As fast as his mother's death played out, Rhaenyra's son, Aegon, barely ten years old, watched the whole thing, frozen in horror. Afterwards, though Sir Alfred thought he should be killed as well, Aegon the Elder forbid it, wanting instead to hold the boy hostage, perhaps thinking of his father Daemon, the news of whose death may have not yet made it to Dragonstone. And so, Aegon the Younger was placed in the dungeon of the castle where his mother had hoped to find safe refuge for herself and her last surviving son. And Aegon the Elder ordered that word of his triumph take wing. The time for hiding is done. Let the ravens fly that the realm may know the pretender is dead, and their true king is coming home to reclaim his father's throne. But in spite of his bravado, Aegon made no move to plan a return to the capital. For starters, between Dragonstone and King's Landing lay the island of Driftmark. Though Rhaenyra had turned on both the Sea Snake and Adam Valarian, branding them traitors, the Valarian fleets remained under the control of 15-year-old Alan Valarian, Adam's brother. Until Aegon could be certain that Alan wouldn't impede his passage or worse, attack whatever vessel he was traveling in, Aegon could make no move. And so ravens were sent to Driftmark, demanding Alan Valerian attend the king on Dragonstone and swear his allegiance. No doubt the messages also mentioned that Aegon not only held his nephew, Aegon the Younger, but also his half-sister, Lady Bela Targaryen, herself a Valerian on her mother's side, and both cousins to Alan. For now, the reply was only silence. But the delay didn't trouble Aegon much at first. He still hoped that his magnificent golden dragon Sunfire might recover and fly again, perhaps even enough to transport him back to King's Landing in triumph. 
It wasn't to be, however. In the aftermath of Rhaenyra's death, Sunfire the Golden only seemed to grow weaker. His wounds grew foul and infected, and soon he stopped eating altogether. Far from proving to be a healthy snack, Rhaenyra Targaryen seemed to disagree quite strongly with her half-brother's dragon. His condition continued to worsen until some weeks after he consumed the queen, Sunfire breathed his last in the outer yard at Dragonstone, where he had fallen after the fight with Lady Bela and Moondancer. It seems to be the case that when dragons fight to the death, they really fight to the death. In almost every case, when two dragons fight, or three in the case of Tessarion, Seasmoke, and Vermithor, none survive. The exception seems to be when there's a considerable disparity in size, like when Vagar faced Arax, or longer ago when Balerion faced Quicksilver. This knowledge would of course be no comfort to Aegon. Devastated and enraged and no doubt looking for someone to blame, he ordered the execution of Bela Targaryen. Only a reminder by his maester about her family relationship with Alan Velaryon saved her. Once again, ravens flew to Driftmark, now with open threats against Lady Bela's life. And once again, the reply was silence. On Driftmark, Alan Velaryon began to prepare his fleet for an attack on Dragonstone. And so an uncomfortable standoff persisted in Blackwater Bay. By this time, Aegon must have known how things stood elsewhere, with three pretenders holding sway over the three hills of King's Landing after the storming of the Dragon Pit and the flight of Rhaenyra. His brother Aemond and Uncle Daemon dead, along with their dragons, in the Riverlands. His youngest brother and youngest son dead in the Reach, along with the betrayers, Adam Valerian, and their dragons. But the wreckage of House Valerian hardly softened his heart towards its remaining members, all children save himself, though he might have taken some heart from the knowledge that there appeared to be no dragons or dragon riders remaining to challenge his victory. Aegon continued, holding a metaphorical blade to Bela's throat and waiting for the moment when he could at last make good on his promise that the king would return to assume his father's throne. In order for that to happen, quite a few things needed to be sorted out in the capital. And so, in our next episode, we'll turn our attention back to King's Landing. With Rhaenyra and Daemon dead, and Aegon the Younger captured, it might have been the end for the Blacks, but as we saw, King Aegon remained trapped on Dragonstone with a very small force, and the Army of the Reach, now under the command of Lord Peak, was effectively no more, having retreated back home. They could hardly claim to have won while lacking the strength to take the Iron Throne, and the chaos at King's Landing made a strong argument that no one at all was in control, for the moment. But it seemed certain that this state of affairs would change soon enough. With several regions heavily devastated and many large battles behind us, the number of armies in the field had dropped considerably. At one point, the war was a sprawl of smaller armies spread throughout the realm. It was wise to keep men separated to a certain degree because larger armies are vulnerable to dragons, as the field of fire well established. But also this was a war where neighbor fought neighbor, which meant armies had a difficult time coalescing in the first place. And many lords still had large untapped resources of manpower that they could bring to bear. There remained significant armies of rivermen and northmen preparing to march on King's Landing, while the Greens were hopeful that Lord Baratheon would finish up with the Vulture King to bring his forces into the field for them instead. Perhaps most notable of all, the number of dragons was severely reduced. Seventeen have now died during the course of the war. Seventeen! The concern that too many men in one army was a liability could be discarded entirely now. All of a sudden, large armies were strategically viable again. 
It would be a return to the style of warfare so familiar for eons, yet gone for these past 130 years, because the Targaryens had given up their great advantage. Their ultimate power, gone. Which is why this episode, among our planned seven in this series, has the greatest claim to be called the Dying of the Dragons. Amongst Targaryens, those who claimed the blood of the dragon, we lost Aemond and Daemon, Rhaenyra and Daron, plus Adam Valerian, Ulf the White, and Hard Hugh Hammer. Historically speaking, the actual dragons who died in this episode are even more significant, and the list is similarly substantial. Caraxes and Vagar, Vermithor, Tessarion, and Seaspunk, Sunfire and Moondancer. A similar but lesser number of dragons had been killed in or near the Dragon Pit, but only two of those, Dreamfire and Cyrax, were adults, and neither of those two had seen battle. Perhaps the dying of the dragons illustrates why Old Valyria was never a true empire, ruled by a coalition of lords Freeholder instead, who may have vied for influence, but who never bowed to an emperor or king. Instead, electing archons from among their number to temporarily hold power where a single voice was required. If House Targaryen's power was but a fraction of the freehold, imagine the havoc that could have been wrought by one dragon-riding family claiming absolute power over others. No doubt, had Valyria ever succumbed to an all-out struggle for power, the dance would pale in comparison. They would also have learned by then the high cost to both sides and riders when dragon fights dragon, and would likely have avoided such conflict except as a last resort. But these lessons were lost, it seems. Targaryen power would never recover. At this point in our telling of the metaphorical dragons, only five remain. Aegon the Elder on Dragonstone with his prisoners, Aegon the Younger and Bela Targaryen, Princess Jaehaerys safe at Storm's End, and Rhaena Targaryen in the Vale. Of the dragons of the fire-breathing sort, only Sheepstealer, Cannibal, and Silverwing remain. Silverwing living on that island in the middle of Red Lake, while Sheepstealer flew off with nettles to live in a hidden vale in... The Vale. <laughs> and of course, no one wanted to mess with the cannibal. However, eggs could still be hatched. Targaryens still possessed the potential to recover their power, which had made them gods amongst humankind. There remain a number of mysteries, though. Several question marks that we may or may not ever learn the answers to. Why did Adam Valarian go to the Isle of Faces? Was he seeking news from the residents there, or perhaps something more mystical? And why was Damon's body never found? Queer currents, we're told, and hungry fish are all well and good as explanations go, but Vagar and Aemon's bones were recovered, and Dark Sister too. Surely some remnant of the rogue prince's remains should have been found? Singers, of course, tell the tale that Damon survived and lived out his days in hiding with nettles, something that strikes us as pretty out of character, especially with his wife dead and his children hostages of Aegon the Elder. But we've learned to be suspicious of any death in Westeros with no body present, and of any story that the maestros who write the histories relate, only to dismiss as impossible. And so we add Damon to the pile of mysteries. Speaking of Nettles, what exactly happened with her? It doesn't seem to be a huge mystery given there were sightings of Sheepstealer from Crackclaw Point all the way to the Mountains of the Moon in the years following the dance, and the reports of a fire witch and her dragon, whose presence were instrumental to the origin story of the Burn Men, seem fairly conclusive as well. Still, we'd love to know more about her life, which may have extended well into the lifetime of characters who are still alive in the main series, people like Maester Aemon and Bloodraven. And what about the death of Daron the Daring? 
Was the young prince killed by a mere sellsword with a morning star who was very much aware of who he was killing? Or was it a nameless man-at-arms who had no idea of the magnitude of his victim's death? Or was Daron's end more unremarkable than that even, as suggested by Munkin? Did he die in his burning pavilion, a victim of sea smoke strafing fires as he slept? Fire and Blood leaves us with this final word about Daron's death, which hardly detracts from the mystery. Whatever the manner of his death, it is beyond dispute that Daron Targaryen, youngest son of King Viserys I by Queen Alessant, died at the Second Battle of Tumbleton. The feigned princes who appeared during the reign of Aegon III, using his name, have been conclusively shown to be impostors. And finally, what about Alice Rivers and her child? Twenty years would pass before Harrenhal was bestowed upon House Lothston in 151 AC. What happened there during that time? And how much of it involved Alice and her child, bastard or no? That's a tale we can actually fill in some blanks on, but it'll have to wait for another installment. The dying of the dragons has been a theme more or less for this entire series, but no chapter has featured more significant deaths than this one. With so few dragons now remaining, of both the human and the winged sort, it might seem like perhaps this is the nadir for House Targaryen. But there's more to come as the House of the Dragon continues in its determination to annihilate itself, as we'll see when we return with Part 6. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed part five of our deep dive into the Dance of the Dragons. And now it's time, as always, for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to Ashea and Yokeboy, the producers of this episode, both video and audio formats. Kevin McLeod and Kai Engel for allowing us to use their music in our production. Michael Klarfeld slash Claradox.de Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the History of Westeros music. And as always, George R. Martin for putting so much history in his world. And finally, we'll close by giving thanks to our patrons. Consider being a supporter, and you could hear your name here, too. Thanks to the Radio Westeros Castle Steel patrons. AJ, Aegon VI, the only arsling you need. Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Asha, not Yara, Oakenfist, Brand the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadigan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Diana, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, History of Westeros, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Ares, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Sonarian, the White Storm, Julie Beth of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old, Bay of Crabs, Mathos of Half Baratheon of Dragonstone, armed with the Valyrian sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margaretha, our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, and Matt M, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Dick Wanerick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Raymond, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Gray, Shari, Soren, Terry, 
Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo, the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. And the history of Westeros patrons, High Lord Jacob Hayes, the Doom Opal, Captain of the Shimmering Tide, Relentless as the Seas, Hand of the King, Lord Giuliano of House Yu, Hand of Queen Ashea, known as the Omni Knight, Lord Jim the Fortuitous of Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog, and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning, Lord of the Chiliad, and Warden of the East. Cabeth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks, and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods, and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath of Covington, Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, and Warden of the South. Jenny the Just, Captain of the Ghost Ship Liberty, which vanished in the Shivering Sea over a century ago, but was recently sighted near Volantis, if tales can be believed. King Beyond the Wall, Sidney Jesse, the Fallborn, Lord of Blue Spring and the Haunted Forest, wields a dagger of dragonglass and the Valyrian steel blade, Red Frost. Sea Lord Sean Gallagher, the Titan's Binger, owner of nine Valyrian steel ears. White Walker Alexander Greyblood, first of the first men now crowned in ice, called Silence Bringer, Wood Blinder, and the Snow of Night, wielder of the ice-forged greatsword, Pale Frost. The Small Council, Lord Taylor of House Lineberry, Strength of Stone, Will of Iron, Master of Coin. Lord Chris B. of House Baelish, Always Keep Your Foes Confused, Master of Whisperers. Drowned Dan, Lord of House Windsor, Master of Karate, Friendship for Everyone, and Ships. Lord Goodkill McGee, Ruler of the Castle Over Yonder. Grand Maester Scotty, The Lords and Ladies in Their Castles. Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell, Breaker of the Second Stone. Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Bread Fort. Ashlyn Winter, the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. The Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrest, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete, Everglaze. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny, Guardian Ranger of the Hidden Hundred Acre Weirwood, Dual Wielder of Valyrian Short Swords, Glorious Morning, and Little Light Wise. Sharpshooter of the Weirwood and Ironwood Laminated Longbow, Todd Von Oben. When you fear things cannot get worse, Snugglebunny enters the fray. The Bastard of the Wolfswood, First Forester of the Old Gods, Sworn to House Iron Weirwood, Listen for the Silence. Casey Stark of House Acres, Peter Rivers, the Pale Dragon and Heir to Blood Raven. Lady Mora of House Stark, Archmistress of Apothecaries and Woods Witch, her castle features weirwood doors with painted moons. Lena Snow, the Twilight Star, Bastard Daughter of Dane, Wife of the Trickster, and Lady of Castle Rivia. Jason Stark, Second Son of the North, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Sword, Bloodbath, Lord of Castle Whitewood, the Chill is Real. Suckass Gamer, Master of Soap and Clay. Amanda Pinkwolf, Lady and Ruler of Castle Whitebast, the Ice and Boldens. Lady Adeline of Sea Dragon Point, Keeper of Trees, Warmth and Frost, Lord Benjen of House Hornwood, the King's Justice, Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate, and the Queen's High Council, Rebea Star Eyes, Lady of Waves and Mistress of Ships, Captain of the Iron Shadow Cat, in the shadows we bear our claws. Grand Archmaester Rennie, whose rod and ring and mask are Quartz Crystal, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Pen, Fire and Ink. The Purple Lord, Leo Anansi, Master of Whisperers, Lady Wolfbird, Mistress of the Eastern Rivers, Gatekeeper of the Northern Skies, Daughter of the Silver Sea, and Master of Coin. Lady Carlin Carey of Castle Stone Sharp, whose horse is shod in Valyrian steel, Prime Rider of the Rising Hills, Master of Laws. And the King's Guard, Lord Commander Namian of House Darkland, the Night Slayer, Valyrian Sword, Onyx Abyss, Sir Dean the White, Knight of the Black Star. 
Gregor Snow called Snow Bear a bastard of Winterfell. Vaughn of House Furster, Sigil is a mailed fist with extended forefinger and pinky on a light blue field. Visenya, let us hold Dark Sister once. Sir Bateman the Dark Knight. Sir Roland de Stark, gunslinger knight of the White Kings, back from a twenty-year ranging to the lands of Always Winter to protect my King Aziz. And the Queen's Guard, Lord Captain Commander Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, James the Green, Lord of the Meadows, Keeper of the Trial of Grasses, Amber the Adamant, Knight of the Mist, and Mother of Squids, the Wintry Wolverine, we finish what you began, Noroniko, Archmaester Vena, whose ring and rod and mask are made of steel, not pudding, Laura Boros, the Lady of Infinity, and the Beard Guard, Hand of the Beard, Lady Suzanne Sinistral, Lord Commander George the Golden, Lady Rita of the Coppermane, the Unbound, Dance the Fervor, Sir Jeff, Warden of the AC, Wielder of Triad, the Multifaceted Beard of Platinum, Red and Brown, Stay Frosty. And the History of Westeros, Night's Watch, Lord Commander Richard de Ligerhart, Wielder of Barry's Ankle Breaker, a flail with blue and silver Valyrian steel spikes, motto, Go Blue. First Builder, Magor Snow, a.k.a. Magor the Cool, the Fire in the Snow. First Ranger Liam, a.k.a. Sir Waiting on a Nickname. First Steward, Sir Zack of House Wild, Lord Shredder of the Spiral, Wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Grail. We'll see you again soon with new episodes of Radio Westeros and History of Westeros. Valar Reredus. Bye for now.